Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm, one, I'm a pastor here as well at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Uh, we are continuing in a series. We're not going to do anything different than we've been doing. We've been wake, making our way through Hebrews chapter 11. It's a, a series of case studies from the Old Testament scriptures about living by faith and not by sight. And we're coming to the end of this, of this chapter and coming to the end of this series that we've been doing since the beginning of the year. And for all of these weeks, because there's just story after story in Hebrews chapter 11, and he, he, the writer kind of gets to the end and he realizes, man, I'm out of breath and I'm only a fifth of the way through the Old Testament. So you know what? We're going to be here all day. Let me just start to like, you know, let me, I don't even have time to tell you about so-and-so and so-and-so, Barak and Jephthah and Samson and Gideon and all of the rest of these people. And he starts going name by name. And then he gives a summary statement of all of those stories. And by the way, I would put every mom I know alongside of these people here described as, as those known for their faith. He says that through faith they conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war. Doesn't that sound like motherhood? But so does this, right? They were suffered, they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment and were stoned and sawn in two and went about destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. That sounds like motherhood too. <laughs> I got an amen. There you go. You know, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens with no shower for days and so forth. So what a great Mother's Day passage this morning. But I want to focus on the one phrase in that summary where it says that they were made strong out of weakness. That all of these were made strong out of weakness. And again, he gives us four or five names here. And instead of taking them each uh, week after week, because the themes are so similar in, in each of those Old Testament passages, we're just going to kind of summarize all of them, thinking about what it means that they were made strong out of weakness. And I've chosen, of all of those that I could have chosen this morning, the story of Barak and Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And I did that for three reasons. First, because the hero, even though Barak is the one mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew of the stories is not actually Barak. Barak comes off, at least in Judges, as not being full of faith. Just the opposite, actually. And he got there because here he's mentioned, but it was Deborah and her courage and leadership that are highlighted in Judges. In the story there in Judges 4 and 5, the women steal the show. Today being Mother's Day, I thought that might be appropriate. So, but The second reason is uh, because the Barak story is the most unfamiliar of all of those mentioned. We're way more familiar with Gideon and Samson and, and David and Samuel and all of these. Very few people know this story, and so I think it might be appropriate that we take the time to do it. And the third reason is, is that this, this Barak story, uh, I wrote a paper in seminary, this would be in 1998, okay, uh, and it was that assignment all of those years ago about this narrative that, that caused me to really come to love the Bible and want to spend my life teaching and preaching. So it was this passage in Judges 4, so I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go there because it meant so much to me at the time and it continues to be, so I fell in love with the Bible reading and studying about this passage. Now, there's no way I can tell you all that I came to love about it in 25 to 30 minutes, so you'll have to, you'll have to just forgive me for having to be, to be quick in summarizing here, okay? So we're going to read from, from Judges chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you might want to open there. It's printed for you in your worship folder. I'm not sure if it's going to be on the screen behind me or not. It's there. It's just not on my screen. It's on your screen, and so I'll have to live by faith, not being able to look behind me to see what's behind me. 
Uh, but we'll read together. Hopefully it's on your screen at home if you're tuning in from home this morning. Uh, it's a longer passage just because it's a narrative and there was no way to... Bro- I broke it up as much as I could, so bear with me as I read this longer passage of Scripture, okay? In Judges chapter 4. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment, and she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim. I don't even know what that, there we go. Aren't y'all, are y'all impressed yet? Hey, okay. I'm doing it, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 irons of chariots of iron, and all of the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men following him, and the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent She covered him with a rug, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep with weariness. So he died. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are not here because we are good, but because we are yours. We thank you for this word. May your spirit come now and make these dry bones live. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. We would see Jesus in him only. In his name we pray, amen. Here's our doctrine this morning. God does not promise to save us from weakness. He promises to save us through weakness. He does not save us from weakness. He saves us through weakness. And so the question for you and I is, where do you feel weak? Where do you feel weak? Like in your life right now and what's going on and what's happening with you? Where, where does the weakness show up? Where do you feel particularly weak? And what emotions do you feel in that weakness? How do you react to it? Do you complain? Do you, do you groan and grump? 
Do you feel anxious? Because it feels like life's out of control. Faith, again, this is a series of stories about faith. Faith doesn't run from weakness. It isn't intimidated by it. It can even boast because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so we're going to really lean into that 2 Corinthians 12 passage this morning, even as we talk about Barak here from Judges chapter 4. And this story, which continues in chapter 5, by the way, the, the chapter 5 is a song that's sung as kind of a companion to the narrative here in chapter 4. And the story really gives us two things to think about. It really is an example first of being made strong out of weakness. Remember, the, these people, they were made strong out of weakness. And this is an example of that. But it's also an explanation for why it is that God works that way. So from Barak, we can see both of those things. We can see an example of being made strong out of weakness. And we can also see the explanation for why it is that strength seems to come out of weakness. At least as the Bible says, it does. And so let's look uh, along those headings at this story. First, the story is an example of being made strong out of weakness. God wants you weak. God wants you weak. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul described a thorn given to him by God. He said it was a gift to keep him from becoming proud and conceited and self-exalting. Now, we're not sure exactly what it was. It doesn't really matter, but, we, but everybody pretty much agrees it was some sort of weakness, maybe a physical weakness or, or some sort of ailment. And three times, we're told there, he prayed that God would take it away from him. And each time, God said no. He wanted Paul weak. And God wants you weak too. And that's what this text teaches. Let me show you. It first shows us that we are weak, actually. It's not just that God wants you weak. You are weak. And if you don't know that, then you're not very self-aware. You're living under some pretty serious, you know, delusions. Now, I appreciate this about the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, we've been reading together. He keeps making this point. So in chapter 1, I don't know if you've noticed how it keeps coming up as he's going through his letter. In chapter 1, he said that all of life is learning to rely not on ourselves but on God. Because in chapter 3, he said very clearly, we are not sufficient in ourselves. All of the stuff that we need, the power and the wisdom and the love that we need to make it through life, it all comes from God and not for us. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, he summarizes all that he's been saying by saying, we are jars of clay. We are frail things, easily broken. We're not strong enough to do life all on our own. That's what Paul's trying to hammer into our heads. And that's what this story's about as well. Because in Judges, we're confronted with this very thing. Look at the very first verses there in chapter 4. He says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, when you read that, you're, there's a very clear lesson that he's trying to get across to us. And it's just this, that these people... The Israelites here, they can't stop doing evil. You see what it says? The people of Israel again did, did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And what you see in Judges is there's this cycle. Every time God delivers them from an enemy, they obey him for a little while because they've, you know, God has brought them up out of that state of affairs. But eventually they get kind of weary and they, they fall right back into their sin. They go right back into their sin and God hands them over to someone else and he oppresses them, this you know, king oppresses them and they cry out to the Lord and there's a little period of revival and then it becomes this cycle. And, and, and what we're meant to see here is that there's something really wrong with us. We lack the resolve and the strength to choose the right thing. 
If we make any spiritual progress, it usually is because of some external constraint. But the moment that external constraint is removed, we're right back where we started. We're told here of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, if you were an Israelite reading this text, that would have been an all-too-familiar name to these people. In Joshua 11, we read about Jabin, king of Hazor. And Joshua killed and conquered and killed Jabin. He captured Hazor. And yet, even though that victory was a part of the people's past, here he is again. Presumably, that Jabin's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And the lesson being here that the spiritual strongholds that we face have a way of coming back around, don't they? Sin is a tyrant. It enslaves. And we in our own strength are powerless against it. Now you see this point being made in other ways in the description of Jabin's army. If you read the text carefully, you'll notice four times we're, we're given this one detail that Sisera's army com was comprised of 900 chariots of iron. You see that? Verse 3, 900 chariots of iron by which he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. And anytime you're reading the Bible and a detail like that keeps coming up over and over again, it keeps being said, you're supposed to take notice of it. The repetition is making a point. And the point here is just to highlight how outmatched Israel is against this military force. Barak is able to muster 10,000 men to join his fight. That's verse 10. 10,000 men, but they are disorganized and poorly armed against 900 iron chariots, which is, would be the equivalent of like 900 tanks against some foot soldiers. They're no match. And that's why Barak is afraid. He's afraid because he realizes that he's weak. And he does not at first respond in faith. Deborah summoned him. You see this as the text goes on. She assured him of victory, and still he hesitated. He said, I'm not going unless you go with me. Now, this is clearly cast in a negative light by the author of the material. Deborah agreed to go, but she has a rebuke. She says, okay, I will go with you, but you need to know the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, without much comment on that, let's just say it is a rebuke of Barak's lack of faith. God's instructions were clear. He said, he said he would draw out Sisera to the Kishon River plain and give him into Barak's hands. That's chapter 4, verse 7. I mean, God is the one moving all of the pieces here. We'll see this in detail in just a minute. He's completely in control of this situation. He's putting everybody where he needs and wants them to be. I mean, look at the language again, verse 7. I will draw out Sisera. So the Lord is setting a trap. I will give him into your hands, he says, verse 7. So he's assuring Barak of victory, and yet it says that Barak didn't go down into the Kishon River plain. Instead, notice this detail in verse 12. It says he went up into the mountains to Mount Tabor. Now, why would he do that? Well, think about it. It makes, it makes strategically, it makes a lot of sense. He was taking away the advantage of Sisera's 900 iron chariots. Right? If you imagine on the plain, I mean, the, on the plains, he, but up in the mountains, they could do guerrilla warfare and the chariots would, would basically be rendered obsolete. But the author again sees this as a lack of faith. And so Deborah has to come to him up there in the mountains in verse 14 and says this up, like, in other words, let's go. What are we doing? Get up. It's time to move. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? And it is the question that Barack has been wrestling with. It's the question that we wrestle with when we're facing overwhelming circumstances. Is God 
Is God for me? Is God with me in this? Is he really working to save me? You know, can I trust him? Can I, can I, can I trust him to really provide for me in whatever, you know, whatever it is that I'm facing? Now, what we find here is that God is committed to not allowing these questions to go unanswered. He often forces the issue. He wants you weak. And when you, because you don't want you weak, when you strategize yourself out of weakness, God comes to overthrow that strategy to impose more weakness until you find your courage in the weakness. Now imagine Barak and his 10,000 men up in the mountains. They look down on the plains and they see those 900 iron chariots. I mean, this formidable, you know, military force. And then God says, let's go. It's time to leave this safe place up here and go down there. Knowing that doing so would give Sisera home field advantage. I mean, on the plains, he could just run them over with his 900 iron chariots. And yet the Lord comes to Brock and says, we're leaving this place and we're going down there. And I just, the good news, the bad news, I don't know how it will land on your heart, but this is just the way God works. It's even more pronounced if we would have looked at Gideon this morning. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Very similar situation. Gideon had 40,000 men, not 10. So he had a little, a few, few more men. But he was, um, he was, you know, fighting against a Midianite army that was described as a swarm of locusts. Uh, it, it was said that the camels were of such numbers that it was like the sand at Anna Maria Island. I mean, it was just this overwhelming force. And God said, came to Gideon and he said this. He said, so Gideon is, for, they're already significantly outmatched. The Lord comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you have a problem. You have too many men. And if you remember, he goes through all of these steps where his 40,000 were whittled down to 300. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the Lord armed them with torches and trumpets and sent them into battle against this enemy. And God said, this is what he said, I will save you with the 300, but not with the 40,000. I don't like this. Anybody else? I don't like this. And the spiritual lesson for us is this, God wants you weak. And he will work to make you weak. So if you feel weak, that's a good thing and not a bad thing. It means that God's at work in your life. He's bringing rescue. And if you ask God to remove your weakness, he probably will say no and keep you weak. Because the moment he does, the moment he was to deliver you out of your weakness, you would sinfully go right back to trusting in yourself. So when you feel sufficient and self-confident and do things in your own strength, that's actually a dangerous place to be. That's when you start to really mess stuff up. If you've planned and you've planned it all out and you've strategized yourself and arranged for a life without hardship and struggle, then let me just be your friend and said, you should expect weakness to find you. God will arrange it. Because he does not promise to save us from weakness. He saves through it. Now secondly, Barak's story is not just an, an example of being made strong out of weakness. It's also the explanation for why strength comes out of weakness, and there's a simple answer. And it's just to teach us this lesson that our hearts are so, um, have such an allergy to. It's that, it's that the strength that we need is not our strength. That salvation is by grace, not human strength. It's from God. It's accomplished through his power and not ours. And this is something we have to be learning over and over again. And so what you see here in, 
Judges 4 is that all of the decisive action in the story is ascribed to the Lord. So look here. And you really need to take your, take your little sheet or your Bible and, and work, walk through the text with me as I show you all of the ways that, that, he, that the writer here is ascribing what's happening here to God. So the beginning and the end, it says the Lord, in verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. So the reason they were in this predicament to begin with, because God actively moved to give them over to this enemy. But then in verse 14, it says, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Now, it's the same word there. The Lord has sold, the Lord sold you to Sisera. The Lord has sold Sisera to you. And it's a rhetorical device to show that everything that's happening in this story is all what God is doing. He says, verse 7, I will draw out Sisera. Verse 14, the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak. Verse 23, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So all of this is stuff that God was doing. And we're told here over and over again that he did it before the people. He did it before Barak. In other words, he did it to be seen, to put himself on display and glorify himself among them. Not because he's petty and vain, but because that's what they needed and it's what we need. Otherwise, we'll just keep relying on ourselves. God saves. No one else does. Okay, God saves. Nothing else does. And to prove that point, he often does things in a way that there can be no doubt that it is his doing. Again, to Gideon, it's just, it's just something that you really have to wrestle with because he comes to Gideon and he says, you are too many for me to rescue you. You are never too weak for God to rescue you. You can be too strong for God to rescue you. I'm not even sure of the theology of what I just said. But I think that's what the text says. You are too many for me to rescue you, lest you say my own hand has saved me. That's what he says. To Barak, he says, okay. You know, Deborah says, okay, we'll go, but you need to know it will not be for your glory. You're not going to get the glory out of this, Barak. And for Paul, remember what he said to Paul what Paul said, he said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me to torment me, to keep me from exalting in myself. You see, we sinfully want to take credit for our lives because we imagine ourselves to be the main actors in our story. And so God's rescue often comes through unexpected, unforeseen people and events, through twists and turns that could have never been predicted. And it's always in the minutia, not just the big stuff, so that he can leave his mark and show that life is far from a run-of-the-mill human situation. Now let me show you a number of things. And this is, where I, this is where the text, I just really love the text. As we read, did you notice how the flow of the narrative, if you didn't go back and read it again, you'll see that as you come to verse 11, verse 11 is a really strange verse. It's parenthetical, it's disruptive, uh, it's, it's strange. He's going along and telling us all about the, the lines of battle being drawn up. And then all of a sudden, we're introduced to Heber the Kenite, who has nothing to do with Barak or Deborah or Sisera or any of what's been happening. And then verse 12, it goes right back to the action. And you're left thinking, oh, that came, you're, you're jarred by that, right? That came out of nowhere. What did that have to do with anything? What's the connection? And that's exactly the point. It's another literary technique. It's a foreshadowing of the end of the story because, of course, Heber and Jael come back into the play later on. Uh, but when Deborah said to Barak that God would defeat Sisera, but that it would be through a woman, that the glory would go through a woman, of course, if you're reading that, who do you think that's going to be? Deborah. And yet, I mean, everything points it to being Deborah, but at the end of the story, it's not Deborah, it's Jael. 
And she doesn't come in until the very end. I mean, she doesn't get involved until most of the stuff's already happened. And so it's a great lesson for us to learn. Verse 11 sets up the surprise ending, and life is like that. And here's what I'm going to say to you. Right now, there are people and details that might seem completely unrelated to what God and what, what's happening in your life at this moment. But they, they, these, they're these you know, small, ancillary things that in the totality of what God is doing with you, they will prove to be the central way that God worked things out in your life. Isn't that neat? That God's way of working is full of surprises so that he can get the credit in the end. Now, another detail makes the same point. It's actually from chapter five. There were given more details about exactly what happened here. Barak does go down out of the mountains onto the plains, and that's what he's committed for here, his faith. Uh, so he, he <laughs> against you know rational thought, he gives Sisera and his 900 iron chariots the tactical advantage except for one thing. As they come down off the mountains, it starts to rain. And guess what happened when it started to rain? The river flooded. And guess what happened when the river flooded? Sisera's chariots sank in the mud and were rendered completely obsolete. And that's why it says, it doesn't say in verse 15, Barak rooted Sisera. It says what? The Lord rooted Sisera. And here's what that means for you and me. When you, let me say it this way, wherever you feel most overwhelmed and vulnerable, in those moments when you feel like the Lord would ask you to give up the tactical advantage, that's the very place where the rescue comes from him. Because Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Dale Ralph Davis, professor at RTS Jackson, Mississippi, he said this, we see as we look back and reflect on God's ways with us, there was uh, some little piece of divine trivia, something that even escaped human notice because it was so minuscule, and yet it turned out to be the vehicle of God's saving help. Now, the reality is, is we see the past far more clearly than we do the present, but our reflection on the past can help us see the present more clearly. You can look back, right? You see, if you notice this in your life, you can look back and you can connect the dots between the things that at the time you know, seemed unrelated and you didn't see how they fit together. And that means that the same thing is happening right now. You just can't see it yet. You can't put it all together in the way that it's happening in this moment. Not yet. But you can know it's happening. Because God is always at work to bring rescue. And structurally, the centerpiece of the story is verse 14 and the question there. Because this is really what the story wants us to wrestle with. Where it says... Um, She's, she's saying to Barak, up, let's go. Does not the Lord go out before you? Now, it's not really a question, is it? It's a promise. It's a rhetorical question. But Deborah stated it as a question, as a mirror to show Barak his own heart and show us ours. Do the same thing for us. It's meant to be a statement, but it can become a question in our doubting and skepticism and fear. So do you have doubts about whether God is going out before you? Suffering can do that. Weakness can do that. But listen again to Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, thanks be to God. This is in chapter 2, verse 14. And we, I, we read this phrase, and it just kind of stayed on my heart for days and days after. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Isn't that a great verse? Thanks be to God, who in Christ always, always, in every circumstances, 
You know, in, in, in everything, he always leads us in triumphal procession. That means God is always going out before us. He's always fighting for us. And whatever we're doing, we're just riding in the wake of the victory that he's already achieved. In Christ. Because Jesus came down from on high, down into the valley of death, just like Barak, down out of, from the mountain of the Lord, down into the valley, to suffer and to die, to save us. And all of the decisive action was his, his life of obedience to the Father so that we could be righteous. And his death on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And his resurrection from the dead so that we could have newness of life. And his ascension back to the Father, seated at the right hand of God to rule over the whole world so that we could now come to him and be assured that he will give us all that we need. I mean, the ultimate display of strength coming out of weakness is the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. And here's what Paul says. Because of Jesus, you can be confident. No matter, and I hope this will, I just, I'm praying this lands upon our hearts. You can be confident that no matter what you're going through, no matter how badly you may have messed things up or how weak you may feel, God is leading you in triumphal procession if you belong to him. Every threat you face, if your faith is in Jesus, every threat that you face, he has already conquered. Before it even gets to you, it's already been defeated by him. And so one of the things we need to do, let's just finish with this. We need to re-narrate then our weakness. We need, to, we need to get into the habit of re-narrating these parts of our lives that really come to us and we experience this weakness. Paul in 2 Corinthians called it a thorn, a splinter, he said. And splinters, you know, have you ever had a splinter? Splinters are painful, but they're really just more of an aggravation, right? It's not like, it's not like lopping off your finger with a kitchen knife or anything like that. A splinter is just, you know, you, you know it's there. You have to deal with it because it might get infected. But you're not rushing off to the emergency room with a splinter, hopefully. Hopefully, that's what moms are for, right? Moms take care of that kind of stuff. And so this, this was the hardest thing in Paul's life. It was the hardest thing in Paul's life. He called it a splinter. Actually, he called it a gift. Did you see that? He said, a thorn was given to me. God was good to give me this hardship I'm going through as a gift. Now, how is it that he could say that? There's an old poem by one of my favorite poets. Her name is Martha Snell Nicholson. It's called The Thorn. Uh, and, here, and here, I'll just read it to you. Uh, it's, it's really lovely. She said, I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and asked him for one priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it's pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which you've given me, but he said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, I, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. See, the thorns are a gift because they make God's power and love and faithfulness known to us in ways they would never have been otherwise. And that's a reason to give thanks, not to complain, not to become bitter, but to be content with weakness and even to boast in it. Because that's what Paul was doing, right? And that's really the entrance exam into Christianity. Become, to become a Christian, you have to admit your own moral bankruptcy and failure. Every person who becomes a member of this church says publicly, I'm a sinner. That's the one qualification for entrance. 
And it's an acknowledgement that God has not saved me from weakness, but he is saving me through weakness, right? Are you alive? You there? We're saved by grace, not works of the law, and so we boast in our weakness in order to boast in his power to save because those things are one and the same. There's an old story from a Brendan Manning um, book that I'm going to end with about a water bearer in India who had two large pots and each hung on the opposite ends of a pole that he carried across his neck and one of the pots had a crack in it. The other pot was perfect and the perfect pot always delivered a full portion of water at the end of the long walk from the stream to the master's house. The crack pot, on the other hand, only arrived half full and so the perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments the poor crack pot was ashamed of its imperfection, and after many months of failure, the crack pot spoke to the water bearer and said, I'm ashamed of myself and want to apologize that I am only able to deliver half the load of water because my crack causes water to leak out of all, all the way back to the master's house. The water bearer felt sorry for the old crack pot, and he said, as we walk back today, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. Indeed, as they walked up the hill, the crackpot noticed the beautiful wildflowers growing on the side of the path, but still felt bad, and so apologized again at the end of the trip. The bear said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path and not on the other pot's side? That's because I've always known about your flaw, and I've taken advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day... As we have walked back from the stream, you've watered them, and every day I pick the flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have had this beauty to grace his home. Now, the point of the story is not that you just need to accept yourself. It's not about your self-esteem. The point of the story is this. The point of the story is it's about your theology. It's about believing that God is so great that he is able to work it so that your weakness, so that your bad decisions, even your sins, so that all of that will, in the end, beautify the banquet table of heaven because of the way they magnify his power and his grace and his love. And if that's true, then you don't have to be ashamed of your weakness or afraid of it or full of regret because of it. You can boast in it. And that's faith. Faith says, I'm sufficient. Uh, excuse me. Faith says, I'm not sufficient. But his grace is. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And then it goes down off the mountain to meet the enemy on his home field advantage, knowing that the Lord is able to bring victory. John Newton wrote a hymn about the verse in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, listen to how he describes the personal strength that came and can come out of weakness. He says, oh, you know, oh, what a cheering word indeed, <laughs> right? You're, you're weak. And he says, oh, what a cheering word indeed, exactly suited to my needs. Sufficient for thee is my grace. Thy weakness is my, my great power displays. Now I despond and mourn no more. I welcome all I feared before. Though weak, I'm strong. Though troubled, blessed. For Christ's own power shall on me rest. My grace would soon exhausted be, but his is boundless as the sea. Then let my boast with holy Paul be that I am nothing, but Christ is all. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, that is...
that is uh, not often enough the boast of our hearts, that we are people who sinfully are still trying to take credit for our lives, that there's the flesh in us that wants uh, to have something that comes from us that we can boast in. And so we're looking for righteousness that is ours. We're looking for a role to play that allows the spotlight to shine upon us so that we can be proud of our accomplishments and so that everybody else can see and celebrate us. This is just not the way of things, though. And so, Father, help us instead to rejoice in taking a minor role in the story to be backstage and out of the spotlight, but just faithful. I mean, that's what we need. And in boasting, in boasting not in the things that make us great, but in the things in us that make you great. I mean, this is, this is just what it means to live by faith. It's what it means to come to you in faith. At the very beginning of our lives with you, to say, Lord, I, I am nothing, you are everything. I am nothing, you are all. I, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. That's the cry of faith. But it's not just a one-time thing we do. We go through our whole lives doing that. So even now, Father, there are some of us who I know there is an enemy stacked up against us and we feel completely overwhelmed and insufficient. So would you help us this morning to find the joy we need, to not run, <laughs> to not be full of fear, but to stand our ground, looking to you, trusting in your power to save, and bold in the face of even overwhelming circumstances so that we might live in such a way that you would gain glory through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the beauty of that phrase, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Moms, we celebrate you today because you have been so good and so faithful and so kind to us. And we've come to know so much about God and, and uh, because, uh, by your love for us. But you've also been sinful and you've messed it up. And the good news is, is we've come to know even more about him because of that. And the reality is, is we celebrate moms today, but more than that, we celebrate a God who's so good to give us moms. And so rest in that, please. Rest in mothering that way, yet not I but Christ. Rest in living your life that way, yet not I but Christ. Because this promise is for all of those who position themselves that way towards the Lord. Here's what this promise means. Because God has already met your greatest need in Jesus, won't he also meet every other need in him? He is sufficient. You're not, but he is. And so receive this benediction, and may his sufficiency be uh, the power from which you live your whole life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.